turn your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 12. We are nigh to the end of 2 Corinthians. Uh, we started it just about a year ago, and so I don't think that's too bad of a pace. Uh, and I've begun in earnest my study and preparation in the book of Job, where we will be when we finish uh, the book of 2 Corinthians uh, getting pretty excited about spending time in Job, even while it feels like we're leaving a trusted friend in Paul uh, in Corinthians. But this morning, we're, we're coming now as Paul is kind of uh, bringing to a head, bringing to a point, uh, this whole issue of his defense against these super apostles, we, they're called. Um, Paul says that somewhat with irony uh, and definitely with sarcasm. And there's actually a fair amount of sarcasm and irony in our text this morning. Uh, cutting speech intended to kind of get to the heart of these foolish folks in, Cor in Corinth. Uh, and Paul's bringing it to a point of his defense about his ministry. Uh, the, the attacks on him uh, have been woven. We begin to see them show up in 1 Corinthians that we studied, and then certainly all through 2 Corinthians, we see this weaving in of the various kinds of attacks on Paul and his ministry. Uh, and we remind, we're reminded that the primary way that the enemy... Uh, whether through false teachers or others, but the enemy tries to lead us astray is by personal attacks on leaders and those that we're supposed to trust. And ultimately, we're supposed to be receiving the word through folks and we're to be taught. And, and so the enemy, what he does is instead of debating facts, instead of it being objective truth, and instead of saying, well, let's go back to the word, it, it says it throws mud on the proclaimer. And that's what they've done with Paul. Uh, Paul can't be trusted. He doesn't speak too well. Paul is ugly. Um, Paul is in it for the money uh, on one side, even though Paul was impoverished. On the other side, Paul won't take money from us, and so how is he respectable? And Paul just is in it for what it, how it serves him. And so there's all these personal attacks on Paul, and so Paul's been left in this incredibly unenviable position of trying to defend himself against these attacks. And so we come down to this final moment, and what Paul is going to do in the last half of chapter 12 is really give us three indicators Three signs of what to look for in trusted ministry. When they're starting to examine Paul, um, when you and I are even in a position of doing ministry, what kind of ministry do we want to do? We want to do ministry that can be trusted, that really points to Jesus. Um, so what do we look for and how do we do it? And Paul gives us three of those. I want to show you that in a larger context. It'll be two parts this, this week and next week to work our way through these three things. Let me just read you the whole uh, larger context, and then we'll focus on the first two this week and then the last one next week. And so Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, picking up in verse 11. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commend commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. This is after the conclusion of this fool's speech. And he says the Corinthians, frankly, you should know better, right? And, and I think we've probably all experienced that. Have you ever thought evil of someone? I have. And, and, and even when you look at it later, you're like, you know, I really should have known better. Uh, I should have trusted, but, but we don't in our flesh. We think evil of people, and that's what they're doing of Paul. He says they should have commended him. He's not at all in fear to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. That word is endurance there. Uh, steadfastness, you might think of it that way, with signs and wonders and mighty works. From what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden 
For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. Or perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I might have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. There's three arguments he's making. He's going to say that the ministry that I've done among you, that you should have commended, that was trustworthy, that pointed to Jesus, first of all, was ministry done in stamina and patience and endurance. It was, it was staying power kind of ministry. It wasn't flash in the pan. We stuck with it secondarily. He's going to say there were signs and wonders, and really it's done in power. God's power was evident and obvious. And then thirdly, it would be done in sacrifice. We could think of that as love both his fact that he was not a burden on them and his intense burden for them. And so this week, we want to consider those first two. We want to consider the concept then of stamina and signs. Now, I think this is a moment then to pause, to just think about ministry in general. Ministry is hard. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm not talking about uh, unfortunately, in our culture, we, we put words and we pack them with meaning that maybe we don't intend. So let's be really clear. I'm not talking about like this ministry here, right? Like preaching ministry, although that is ministry. Uh, I'm talking just as much about uh, your love for your neighbor in your community. I'm talking just as much about serving each other. I'm talking just as much about feet washing kind of meal making ministry. I, I'm talking about ministry being loving God and your neighbor like Christ has called you to do. Ministry. Ministry is hard to do. Because you have to minister to people, and people are annoying. And they, they frankly, they're tough to deal with. Uh, I heard a pastor years ago, he said, if you don't like how sheep smell, don't be a shepherd. This point, another guy, he, he said, ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. Now, and, and, I'm, and again, I'm not talking like pastoral ministry. Oh, thanks, Steve, appreciate the shots. That's not what I'm saying. But let's just be honest. Like, I'm annoying, right? Like, like, people wear on us. We're commanded as Christians to actually forbear each other. You know what forbearance means? Putting up with each other's idiosyncrasies and annoying habits. Right? We're told to forgive one another, which that tells us in the life of the local church, people are going to sin against you. Well, that's painful. And so ministry is hard. So how do you keep doing ministry when it's so difficult? You know, we, we even point back to, we think of parenting. I don't really have a choice, but Proverbs talks about how a, a woman's children rise up and call her blessed like olive plants. It takes 18 years for an olive plant to mature. Ministry's hard because lots of times it's done with no real gratitude, and ministry's hard because people sin, sin against you, and ministry's hard because you fail, and ministry's hard because you get fatigued, and yet we're told here by Paul, example, learn to do trusted ministry that ultimately points to Jesus and not us. We're reminded then that ministry must always be couched in this concept of love. 
Well, how do we walk in love toward people that we're called to love and serve in Jesus? How do we walk in a sympathetic, empathetic, and compassionate way to those that God has called us to serve? And so I just want to pause at the front end of the sermon and say this, learn to live aware of the desperate need of people around you. Now, sometimes they're aware they're desperate, but just as often as not, they're not. <laughs> they're kind of clueless. So we tend to be blind to our own blindness. We have uh, all these kinds of fallacies in our mind. We have confirmation bias. We believe something. So then we start looking at evidence to back up our, our already present belief rather than look through evidence to produce belief. And so we tend to believe one way. We tend to not know what we don't know. We tend to think we're experts when we're not. And so lots of times we're not aware of our desperate need. And then other times people are desperate. I want you to know this. Learning to love people in ministry is living in the existence of their desperation. Darren read the passage from Mark 9 this morning. The same miracles recorded in Matthew 17. Jesus has been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, he comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration. He's greeted by a crowd. This crowd is gathered because a man has brought his little boy to the disciples. His little boy is possessed of a demon. Uh, the different details are recorded in different of the Gospels. Uh, this little boy is mute. He's never spoken. Uh, this little boy uh, was convulsed of a demon, and when he's controlled by this demon, he has been prone to throw himself into the water to attempt to drown himself. On other occasions, around a campfire, around a, a fire in the home, the little boy, in a moment of possession of a demon, has literally thrown himself into the fire to try to commit suicide. And so the dad brings his little boy. And he comes to the disciples. The disciples had previously, in the ministry of Jesus, been out, sent out two by two. And the disciples had cast out demons. The disciples had healed people. The disciples were amazed, actually, by those things they'd done. They'd actually come back to Jesus, and they said, even the demons obey us. And Jesus had told them, don't be amazed that the demons obey you but be amazed that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, be, be in awe that you're saved, not by the power that it seems like you do. Well, this father had heard stories. He, he knows of the miracles. He brings his little boy. It is hard to live in the desperation of this dad. Where would you be? <laughs> uh, this little boy would have carried the scars on his body from the burns. There's no way around it. This father carries the scars on his heart. He knows that at any given moment, if he takes his eyes off his son, his son may be possessed of a demon, it may be too late. Uh, when we had our first child, I was just terrified. You have a kid, what do you do? How do you fix this? This little creature depends on you. Um, and a friend of mine said, Steve, parenting, you'll, you'll be okay. Your job, the first three years, just keep them from killing themselves because they don't know what they're doing. They stick forks in outlets and put hands on stoves. Just keep them safe. Can you imagine having a son that you live in a constant terror or fear as a parent? That if they wake while you're asleep, you may wake up to an empty house because your son has run to the river and drowned himself. It's desperate. This man comes desperate to the disciples, is pleading with them. They try to cast out the demon, and nothing happens. And it's evident that they are powerless to help this man. And then Jesus shows up. And the man is begging Christ. Christ talks about, you need to have faith. The man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Desperate. 
I want us to begin the sermon this morning in our understanding of trusted ministry to realize this. God has called us into desperate people's lives. We are surrounded by desperate people. There are desperate people in this room this morning. We have to live in this reality and walk in the knowledge, whether they know it or not, that we have very needy people around us. And frankly, that like the disciples, we are not enough. It doesn't seem like we can fix their problems. We don't have all the answers. We don't have the power to change things. We don't have the power to heal them. We don't have the power to cast out their demons. It, they, they, even when we're confronted with their desperation, we feel weak and powerless to affect change in their lives. How can we fix it? On the flip side, you may be here this morning very well aware of your own desperate need. You need more than just a follower of Jesus. You need Jesus. You need more than just a disciple of Jesus. You need Jesus. You need to see and experience Christ. And so the people in Corinth now have these super apostles, and these super apostles are in their presence, and the super apostles are saying, look at us. And Paul is saying, no, trusted ministry never says, look at me. Trusted ministry says, look at Jesus. Desperate people are in need of Christ and his power. And so the question this morning is, how do we do ministry in such a way that it points to Jesus and not to us well let's start unpacking these three ways we'll get through two of them this morning first of all it has to be ministry done in god's strength it has to be ministry that has staying power it has to be ministry that is done with stamina you know endurance endurance is the product of pain plus time in the right way i'm gonna say that again endurance is the product of pain plus time in the right way you see the nature of christian life is you can go through pain over a long period of time but not respond rightly and never learn spiritual endurance. Or you could be in the midst of pain and say, I don't have the time for the pain. Uh, I'm going to get out of it. Sarah did that, right? God told Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a baby, and Sarah's old. Her womb is as a tomb, the New Testament pictures it. It is gr a graveyard, and God said, you're going to bear a son. Sarah's like, I can't live under that pressure. She didn't have the endurance for it. And I'm not throwing stones because I think Sarah still had more faith than I have. But Sarah said, I, I, I'm not, I can't handle it. Take Hagar and have a baby with her. Now, if we know Sarah and we live in reality, and we just put ourselves in Sarah's shoes, uh, they don't have ultrasounds. They don't have all this medical technology back then. They don't know why they're infertile, right? Now, typically, commonly in the culture, the blame would always be centered on the woman. But they don't know for sure. Is it, is it a Sarah problem? Is it an Abraham problem? Don't you think there might even be a smallest part of Sarah hoping that even Hagar going in doesn't produce a child? Because it's not her problem. Maybe it's small. Whatever it is, what we know it is, is a lack of faith in God. Since Hagar, bam, Hagar has a baby. Now later, Sarah's in the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, by faith she goes in and she bears Isaac. And we have the nation of Israel. But I just want you to know that even a woman of faith, a woman who loves God, a woman who wants to walk with God, a woman who wants to do what God has promised over her is going to happen, she's in that position, her faith wavers, and there's no endurance. Endurance is the product of pain plus time in the right way. Paul says, I did this ministry in endurance. In verse 11, that word that he uses with pa that word patience, that's exactly what it means. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience or endurance. In other words, I stayed with you and I did what I was supposed to be doing over a period of time. We know from the book of Acts, it was 18 months. 
he spent with Corinth. But it's not just that. He visited them again, then he came back to them another time. They have ugly business meeting where people are railing against Paul. Somebody apparently stands up in the church, this rich guy who's having an affair with his stepmother. Ugh, and he's like, Paul's the problem. Nobody defends Paul. Everybody's angry at Paul, and Paul leaves. Like, Paul has been with these people. Paul has been in the flames with the church of Corinth. He endured. He had experienced pain for a long period of time, and yet he kept at it. He kept doing what God had called him to do. Why would we do that? James tells us in his letter, he says, let a trial have its perfect work. In other words, stay in it. Don't be like a Sarah and run from it. How do you run from trials? Right? Like, none of us are doing Sarah's path. So how do we run from trials? How does Steve run from trials? I'll just be honest with you. Most trials in, your, in my life that I've experienced, and we've certainly experienced financial trials and certainly health trials, obviously, over this last year. But lots of trials in my life have been relational trials. You know how you run from a relational trial? It ain't complex. You quit returning those text, phone calls, and emails. I don't have time to be with you. I don't have time to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to be around you. You know what you are? You're toxic for my mental health. And I run. Or, or when, I, when I was younger and I still feel these pulls in my flesh, I hit first. Right? I, 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 see, I see a person and it feels like I'm trying to bob and weave a little bit. Right? I'm trying to avoid the shots. And I see them plant their back foot. I know they're about to cock back and nail me one. I hit them first right? So I handle, I handle the pain, the relational trial. I'm not going to endure it. I'm just going to nail you first. Or I'm reactionary. You hurt me, so hurt people hurt people, right? So you've hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you more. I need to hurt you in a way. So these are all ways. So this is Steve. I'm going to guess I'm not the only one in the room that's like this, though. How do we run from trials? We ignore them. We, we can self-medicate to avoid them and we can medicate in all kinds of ways we can self-medicate obviously through actual pharmaceuticals we can self-medicate through overindulgences alcohol food exercise even you can overindulge in entertainment uh, relax time that that just turns into zone out time but endurance comes as we endure pain over time responding in a right way why would we endure because there's something at the finish line that matters more to us than the pain that we're experiencing. Paul's argument here is in opposition to the super apostles. They haven't been there that long, and they're opposed to the concept of suffering in ministry. One of their ac accusations against Paul is Paul's ministry is fruitless. This is in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Paul's ministry is fruitless, and that's painful because that's Paul's fault. Um, Paul has been rejected of people because that's Paul's fault. Paul has experienced persecution because that's Paul's fault. There's a way to do ministry and always have fruit, always have success, not have people reject you, have people respect you. Look at us, that's how we're doing it. The apostles, super apostles haven't been there that long. Those false teachers haven't even been there that long. And they think pain is the problem. And that's an appealing message. You can have ministry without the pain. You can have ministry with obvious fruit. You can have ministry with respect. We can, you can have ministry with the things of this world. And Paul doesn't have those because Paul is messed up. But Paul is saying, no, what I've actually done is I've endured, and the endurance proves that there's something worth it. I'm not a sadist. Paul says, I'm not enjoying this. 
but there's something worth it. But it's not just that there's something worth it. Paul understands that the pain itself, trials, as we learn spiritual endurance, they, endurance, they change us. God has designed to change each and every one of us by the trials that we experience. We study the rest of the New Testament. We don't have time to go to all of this text this morning, but whether it's in 1 Peter or it's whether it's in the book of James, trials reveal faith. Trials reveal faith. You take somebody, they say, I know and love Jesus. You dump them in a trial, and all of a sudden they don't know and love Jesus anymore. They've revealed they never had genuine faith. Trials will reveal genuine faith. Pain reveals what you really believe. But pain doesn't just do that. Trials don't just reveal faith. Uh, trials purify faith. They, they burn off the dross. It's like gold. Uh, you f- heat it up in a furnace, and then you scoop off the dross, the fake stuff, so that only pure faith remains. P- trials have a way of stripping away from us all the things that just flat out don't matter. This past year, as my wife was going through her trial, there's lots that just didn't matter anymore. You don't have time for it, right? Trials have a way of doing that. It burns away the dross, so trials reveal faith. Trials purify faith, but trials also strengthen faith. It's like steel, you heat it up, you pound it out, you fold it over on itself, maybe make some Damascus steel, keep folding it, keep folding it, keep welding it, keep pounding it, and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger, then you quench it, and it's just strong, it's strong. Trials strengthen your faith. Paul is leaning into the reality to say this, trusted ministry, ministry, that we should do that's trustworthy and ministry that we should trust is always going to be the kind of ministry we see endure pain over long periods of time in the right way it's not flash in the pan kind of ministry furthermore paul is letting us on and on a secret here ministry itself can be the trial it's not just health afflictions it's not just financial hardship or relational rejection the sheer act of doing ministry can be a trial that's going to work on your faith and endurance that proves the validity of your faith because ministry is hard and frankly serving desperate people is hard see when you and i become aware of how desperate you are if you're that dad let's just let's put it there right so just imagine you're that dad you got your boy He's never spoken a word to you. He's never said thank you. He's never said good night. He's never said I love you. He has bandages on his body from burns and scars. When you put him to bed at night, you tie him to his bed. Terrified he'd wake up in the middle of the night and kill himself without you being there. Now, what would you do to get him the help that he needs? I mean, let's just be honest. You best get up out the way. Because I'm going from point A to point B if that's going to help my little boy, right? I mean, this ain't even rocket science, is it? Ministry with desperate people and two desperate people should produce love and empathy and sympathy and compassion. But just let's live, live in this awareness. In our desperation, we think what we've got going on is the most important thing in the universe of what's going on. No matter what the desperation is about. Ministry itself to desperate, needy people can be very, very difficult and costly. Remember how the crowds would press around Jesus? And there's times even the disciples get confused about it because at one point they try to push the little kids away from Jesus, right? 
And he says, no, let them come. Why would the disciples do this? Because they didn't love children? No, it's because they saw the press of the crowds on Jesus. Jesus just pressed in on every side when people realized their desperation. He might be able to help them. There's times Jesus had to go away into the mountain just to get some space and to pray. Ministry itself can be a trial. That's why I'm actually convinced lots of people are not willing to commit to do ministry. Because it's costly. But trusted ministry, trusted ministry will endure. And it will be pain plus time responding the right way. We can actually see this in Christ. Paul makes this claim not because this is his own personal experience of ministry, although it is, but Paul makes this claim because it's the pattern of Jesus Christ. And when we look at Jesus Christ's ministry, we're told about his endurance. In Hebrews chapter 12, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The endurance of Jesus on the cross is the ultimate endurance in ministry. Why? Because it was accomplished bearing all the sin weight of the world. Jesus bore all the wrath that your sin and my sin deserve. The Bible's crystal clear that we're all sinners. We're born sinners and then we prove it by everything we do. And that sin invites the wrath of God because God is holy and he can have nothing to do with our sin. And so while he loves us, he yet condemns sin as he must do. You see, because if you love one thing, you must hate something else. I love life. I hate abortion. I love life. I hate genocide. Right? I love health. You can hate sickness. You love needs being made. You hate impoverishment. I love justice. I hate injustice. God loves holiness. He hates sinfulness. And so he says, I'm going to pour my wrath upon it. And so you're going to physically die. And then ultimately, you're going to be spiritually dead and spend eternity in hell. And so this is the problem. And so Jesus goes to the cross, born on the earth, lives a perfect life, sinless life, never sins, chooses to go to the cross. He doesn't deserve it. He's an innocent man. He chooses a death at his time, at his choosing. There's a number of times in the life of Jesus they want to kill him. He just like walks through the crowd. It's kind of this weird miracle moment. But this is the time he lays down his life. No one takes it from him, he says. Lays down his life. And in that moment, on the cross, Jesus took all the penalty for your sin and mine. God pours his wrath upon him. And for hours, Jesus endures the silence of the Heavenly Father so that when you and I cry out to Heavenly Father, we never hear silence. He endured the cross. Pain plus time responding the right way. Author of Hebrews goes on and says this in verses 3 and 4. Consider him then. In other words, think about it. Meditate upon this reality. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. Now, that is one of those nutheteo confrontational counseling moments. Nutheteo is the, is, the, is the Greek word we normally use. We find in the Bible it talks about exhortation. It's, it's kind of like in your face confronting you because this is kind of not easy to hear. Because you're exhausted, and actually in the context of Hebrews, it's like you're running a marathon. So you're like on mile, I don't know, 15, and it's all uphill, and it's blazing sun, and it's been a while since somebody handed you a banana or Gatorade, and you're tired, and you're like, oh, this is so hard. This is so, it's so hard to fight against my temptation. It's so hard to do ministry. It's so hard. And it is hard. I'm not minimizing it. But this is what he said, you ain't dead yet. You can slow to a walk. I don't care if you're crawling. You're not dead yet. Keep moving. It feels a little drill sergeantish, doesn't it? 
but we're called in that moment to look to Christ. We're called in that moment to be infused with the energy and the power of the Spirit as we walk in the reality, Jesus experienced death for me, I will live life for him. The endurance of Jesus is a powerful display. Again, why do we endure? Why do we go through this? Not because we're sadists. Not because we love pain somehow. But it shows us that there was something of a greater value. Jesus valued something higher than safety, pleasure, convenience, and popularity. Jesus put a higher value on something than staying in heaven. Jesus put a higher value on something than experience acceptance. Jesus put a higher value on something than dying of an old age with no pain. It says here it was for the joy that was set before him. We're called to endure with eyes fixed on Jesus and his ministry on earth and his ministry now in heaven. There will be no trusted ministry from you There will be no trusted ministry toward you, in you, or out of you that is not marked by endurance. Time plus pain in the right way because that's the way Jesus ministered. And so we see Paul's argument. We understand that he's basing it upon the life of Christ. Well, then what about you and I? Well, endurance in ministry works opposite from the way we think about endurance and physical life in a key way. Um, a number of years ago, we had uh, a family. They were at the, from the boys' farm up in Newberry, and they came, and, and they'd have all these boys, and boys are placed in that, in that setting who, for a variety of reasons, can't be in their own home. Typically, it's really they're not receiving the care that they need, and so they're placed in this home. And so this family, lovingly, they were house parents. They brought all these boys. There was one little boy. He would come every Sunday, and, and some little boys would just kind of sneak out and go up. But this, this boy, this, back when I used to stand by the back doors and shake people's hands after, he always waited in line to shake my hand, always. And so it was kind of a sweet moment, <clears throat> and I uh, shook his hand one Sunday, and he, like, like just kind of giggled, and then walked away, and the dad was right behind him, and he's laughing. Now, the dad's this big, giant mountain of a guy, um, was a uh, heavy machine operator, bulldozers, you know, just kind of salt to the earth, uh, Bob was his name, I love Bob, he's a great guy, um, and then Bob shook my hand. When Bob shook my hand, it's a little bit like your hand just got, like, shaken by cinder blocks made of sandpaper. You know what I'm saying? He's a man's man. And, uh, and he's like laughing, giggling to himself. And he's like, do you know why he loves shaking your hand? And I said, no. He said, because he tells me his hands are the smoothest I've ever felt. <laughs> huh. A kid on my hit list. I'm here to tell you. What he's saying is I got preacher hands. Right? Like, like most callous thing I do is this. Back when I used to work, work construction, it wasn't like that. When I was swinging a hammer, I had calluses on my hands, and they were scarred and cut up, and I'd always have grease under my nails, and I'd always, have, always walked around with at least one black nail where I hit it with a hammer, right? Now i got preacher hands. Well, when we endure things, we experience lots of scars, and the scars produce calluses that over time protect you. That's what they do. They actually protect you. Endurance in ministry produces lots of scars that no one can see but they actually instead of toughening your heart they soften your heart when you respond the right way and so it's this really frankly very difficult thing because when we see people in physical weakness we should intuitively know to be gracious toward them open doors for them 
make it easy for them. Help them load their groceries and provide for them and help them do work right now. The, the visibility of their weaknesses invites compassion. The hard thing about ministry scars is they can't be seen. And so you'll hurt from doing ministry and pouring into ministry and you've had pain over time and it's producing spiritual endurance. And rather than it callousing your heart where it hurts the most, it just keeps softening it and making it more tender both to Christ and to the people that are desperate that you've been called to love and serve alongside of. And so for a maturing believer, I think the trials work in such a way that they just have to keep being there to keep changing us. Stop thinking of trials as a punishment. Instead, understand them as a process of God's good, kind work in us. And so I want to give us a couple truths in about endurance. First of all, that I think are really important. Number one, number one, don't confuse endurance with an absence of healthy rhythms of rest and recharging. Endurance is hard, and endurance is developed through pain over time, responding the right way. But here's the problem. We tend to do ministry and think of spiritual endurance the way we do our workplace world. The way we do our workplace world is whatever your vacation time is, you work really hard 50 weeks a year, right? And week 49 is like the hardest because you're getting ready for the two weeks you get off. And you go nonstop. You're firing on all cylinders. Bam, 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 bam. I, don't, I know actually very few people that work 40-hour weeks anymore. I think everybody's like hitting 50, 60 hours. You're working hard, working hard, working hard, working hard, so you can do nothing for two weeks, right? Whatever your nothing is, right? Some of you, nothing is sitting in the woods shooting animals that you like to eat. I don't like shooting them, but I like eating them. So that's your nothing. Fine. Some of you, nothing is an experience. I want to hike the Himalayas or whatever, right? I'm going to go climb every mountaintop. Good, good for you, whatever your nothing is. Some of you who are like me and closer to Jesus, it's just sitting on a beach reading a book. No, I'm just kidding, right? But I do love that. It's not more spiritual. Everybody's got their nothing. Everybody's got their nothing. But you work really hard to get to nothing. And the problem is, that's actually not a healthy rhythm of life for you. Go ask your doctor. And it's not how God designed you to live. And it's definitely not a healthy rhythm for ministry. Because what you will do is you will burn out. And God never designed you to do ministry that way. And on the flip side, you'll think this way. I've done lots of ministry. It's time for me to have a break. The problem is ministry is life. And what God did do was build in what are to be healthy rhythms, healthy Sabbaths of life. As a matter of fact, at least one day a week, he has called you and I to set aside and do a different kind of work, worship work. Be with other believers, rest in God's good, kind truth, worship him, and get some physical, spiritual, emotional downtime. You don't learn endurance by burnout. You've got to give time for your muscles to rebuild. If you're lifting weights, you can't work on the same muscle group every day. They actually don't keep growing. You actually can damage your body. I want you to know that endurance is not proven by you always having to be the one with the answer. You always having to be the, the end of the phone call. You always being the one to do every single ministry work. But build in your life healthy rhythms that God has designed for you. But secondarily, endurance shows God's strength because it's out of our weaknesses. 
The reality is, don't be afraid of pain. It's going to hurt. See, the problem is, there's, there's like these two ditches. There's one ditch of just burnout, of people don't ever have healthy rhythms of rest and re-energizing in Jesus, because when Jesus went away, that's what he went away to do. He went away to get rest and time with the Father in such a way, and I'm not trashing downtime. Get some downtime. But he went away so that he might come back and do ministry. And so one ditch is people say, man, I just have been burned out. I'm burned out. And they go into rest mode, and it's like you shake your head, and it's five years later, and what's ministry? They never get back to it. On the other hand, you have people that the moment ministry starts being hard, and it hurts, it's like, well, this can't be good. (laughs) This is not the right thing. And what's interesting about this is all of us, I don't care what the area of life it is, right? So say you want to start working out tomorrow and it's New Year's, so maybe people made new commitments. I'm going to start working out or I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to do what's hard. I'm going to go to, I'm going to, maybe you're working on education. So I'm going, to, I'm going to be taking this class and it's going to be hard. And it starts hurting, starts eating into you time. It's painful to you. So you start doing ministry. I'm going, to, I'm going to do this aspect of ministry. I'm going to commit to loving and serving my neighbor this way, doing a study with them or having them into my home and uh, so I can start building relationships for the gospel uh, maybe it's more uh, official ministry in the sense that it has a schedule right so i'm gonna i'm gonna usher i'm gonna greet i'm gonna i'm gonna do music i'm gonna do sunday school i'm gonna do nursery whatever it is and then it starts hurting and there's lots of people the other ditch is the moment it hurts they think it must be bad and we need people in our lives to say no the pain itself is not the problem god wants to teach you to endure you will never ever ever learn spiritual endurance without pain So stop thinking you'll do ministry without pain. That was the lie of the super apostles. In fact, the Corinthians looked at Paul and they wanted to say, how can we know that it's Jesus coming out of you? Because the super apostles are saying it's not. So how can we know? Paul will say this. We'll look at this in a few weeks as we get into chapter 13. But it's so part of this. He says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others. And I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, But if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. You know what he's saying? You can know it's Jesus coming out of me because it's coming out of a broke, messed up, weak vessel. Trusted ministry will be ministry that has spiritual endurance. It's in pain over time. And guess what you are when you realize you're in pain? You're weak. And you realize these people don't need my strength. My children don't need my strength. My spouse doesn't need my, my friends don't need my words of wisdom. My neighbors don't need my education. My coworkers don't need my platitudes. What they need is Jesus. That man's little boy is mute and covered in bandages and burns. He didn't need the disciples. He needed the power of God. He needed Jesus. Trusted ministry. Trusted ministry. There's three signs that Paul gives us here. The first one is trusted ministry, ministry and stamina. It's Cruz. Second one. Second one is signs. So if we go back 
to the text. It's, it's interesting the way he frames it. He says, verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. So we focus on the endurance. Now he comes back to the signs. With signs and wonders and mighty works. So the second, sign, second thing that he points to is these signs. And again, we're structured the same way. Paul's argument in Christ and then finally in us. Now this is interesting, I think, for two reasons. Number one, first, we know that Satan actually loves to imitate the work of God with his own kind of signs and amazing feats. So we need to wrestle with that. How do signs point to trusted ministry if we know Satan loves to masquerade and kind of imitate signs? Secondarily, frankly, how do we learn from signs being a part of trusted ministry when uh, none of us are doing signs? Right? Ain't none of you going to St. Jude's healing people. You know, I got a cold, you got the flu, so you got COVID, so your kid breaks his arm. There's nobody in this church you're calling up and say, hey, can you swing by? Aaron broke his arm, need you to pray on him, touch him, heal him. And that ain't happening. So how do we learn from this, and what do we even do with this? So we want to wrestle with it. So first of all, signs and wonders in the Bible, Paul's argument. Think miracles here. Signs and wonders are things that disrupt the natural world. Miracles happen. They do. What I'm saying is none of us are imbued with these powers in the same way. And Paul actually, uh, if we were to study in the text of Scripture this way, we begin to understand this. Signs and wonders get attention to the message. That's what they do. They say, look at the sign, now listen to the messenger. Maybe the best example, one of the first examples you can think of is Moses with Pharaoh, right? Most of us are at least familiar with that story. Moses is going to go to Pharaoh, let my people go. You know, every, every one of you is thinking Charleston, Charleston Heston right now. Let my people go, right? And uh, how are they going to believe me? So he gets the staff, throws down the staff, turns into a snake. You know, turns the Nile into blood. And we got frogs and locusts and, uh, and darkness for days. And ultimately the death of the firstborn of every person who doesn't believe and put blood on the doorpost signs and wonders and all of those signs and wonders are intended to get people to look up and say what is going on here where is this power from they're all intended to say look at the wonder listen to the messenger that's what they're intended to do peter played on this in his sermon in acts 2 22 he's preaching to the nation of israel as men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Clearly also the apostles are doing signs and wonders. We know some of them. They had things like visions and they did healings and they cast out demons. World warping works. Paul is saying that this is a mark of the apostles and the Corinthians should be aware of them. Interestingly, uh, this is one of those moments that, that the language helps. Paul uses what's called the dative case. What that means is, is Paul is not saying with these words, I did them, but rather they were done through me. Even in this, that's why Paul says, I am nothing, even while he's saying we did all these signs and wonders. Because he's saying, I'm nothing, Jesus did this through me. And so Paul understands the way signs and wonders were intended to work. Paul is making the case here, though, that in some way they verified his apostolic authority. But, if, but I'm just going to keep making this complex till we unravel the rat's nest, right? <laughs> because we know other believers had, had spiritual gifts that were miraculous in this season of the life of the church because other spiritual gifts were things like working of miracles and healings. So it wasn't just the apostles who could do these things. Apparently these super apostles on some level, had done these kinds of things as well. They were claiming, look at us. 
And Paul is saying, you know what? I've done the same works that they did. They haven't done anything I haven't done. In fact, Paul's point is, by saying I'm nothing, that it shouldn't be about the signs and wonders at all. And if that's what you're focusing on, you're missing the point. Because his argument is when we think of ministry in its totality, signs and wonders were always intended to say, oh, there's a sign and wonder. Let me look at the messenger. We can see this reality in Christ. Christ several times would refuse to even do signs and wonders. Christ understood that signs and wonders would not produce faith in people. The Pharisees came and to argue with him, seeking from a sign from heaven to test him. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then came some of the scribes and Pharisees, answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You know what that sign was? Resurrection from the dead three days later. At another point, when Jesus tells a parable, he says, Even if one raised from the dead, they will not believe. This is the point. Signs and wonders never, ever, ever produced faith. They simply said, there's a power here, let me examine the messenger. And we're called to do that all along the way. Plenty of people were exposed to signs and wonders in Jesus' day and never believed. In Matthew 24, 24, it actually says this, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. In Thessalonians, he says, in later times it will be false Christs who come and do signs and wonders and many will be deceived. Now, why does that matter to you and I? I think it matters if you've ever been ministering to a desperate person and you can't fix it. You don't have just the right word that seems to take their pain. You can't heal them and And when those begin to happen and you love someone, their desperation, listen to me now, becomes your desperation. And you are begin to be tempted to think this. If only they could experience or see this amazing thing, then that would fix their unbelief. You may have even had an encounter with an atheist or agnostic. You ever had an atheist, someone who denies the existence of God, or an agnostic? You ever had them say that? Well, if I had actually seen Jesus walk on water, if I actually saw him heal the blind, and the truth is, signs and wonders were done in front of all kinds of people, and they find all kinds of ways, Romans 1, to suppress the truth and to deny it. Signs and wonders don't produce faith. They point to a messenger that we're intended to examine. And the problem is the super apostles were taking the signs and wonders, whatever had been done by God through them, and they were saying, not just examine me, but they were saying, look at me and trust me. Paul is saying signs and wonders were done so that you might look to Jesus. But we're still left with a problem because none of us do signs and wonders. I think the reality, though, is (laughs) Paul helps us in a number of other places to understand that that was not the ultimate power he rested in. 
The fact of the matter is what signs and wonders were supposed to be were supposed to be signs of God's power, not your power, because no man could do this. And even the confusion about Jesus, it's either a demon or God. No man can do this. In other words, what you and I need to do and embrace in the reality of trust and ministry is this, is stamina, but you and I also need to trust in doing ministry in a way that puts God's power on display. Well, how does that happen and what do we focus on? Well, what did Paul focus on? I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul embraced this kind of ministry, right? He said, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with law, speech, or wisdom. For I decided to do nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling in my speech and my message plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of god when that dad brought his son to the disciples that they had already healed people they had already cast out demons and yet they could do nothing here why is it in this moment they could do nothing there are two parts of the new testament that give us clues part number one i referenced earlier when they had healed people and cast out demons they came back amazed look at what we were able to do jesus said do not be amazed that you're able to cast out demons do not be amazed that you're able to be healed they're able to heal people be amazed that your name is written in the lamb's book of life be amazed that you've been saved we then understand when this guy brings his son, Jesus ends up casting out the demon. The boy, everybody thinks he's actually dead, but he's not. Jesus lifts him up, and everybody's amazed. This boy can talk and walk, and now he's been made whole. The father's faith is full, and, and Jesus looks at his disciples. They say, why couldn't we cast the demon out? He says, this type only comes out by prayer and fasting. Oh, that's key, right? Super spiritual secret. If I pray and fast, power from on high will fall down. It's my mighty amulet to cast a spell. No. Fasting was a way of demonstrating I am a holy before God. I will deprive myself of something I need to demonstrate my ultimate need is him. Prayer is a humbling of yourself before God and saying, not me, but you. Not, as Jesus said, my will be done, but yours on earth as it is in heaven. What the kid needed was the power of God. What the disciples offered was them you know what desperate people need they don't need you and i they need christ and his power and the way that power is brought to bear is through the gospel itself in other words when we take paul here the best way for the power of the gospel to be made plain is when it actually comes through very weak and incapable people. Because in weakness and incapability, they begin to see the power of the one they really need. Johnny has to win and to be sure of taking the title. And right now, he seems to have lost control of his legs. And this is worrying. Oh, and he's starting to slow. And there is a little way to go. There's half a K to go. And Johnny is running out of time and is losing he's losing his sense of direction this is worrying oh goodness me this is a horrible sight 
Jonathan Brownlee has lost it now and has staggered to a stop at the side of the course and Alistair's stopped to help him along and Alistair is going to try and carry his brother home. Dramatic scenes in Cozumel as the Olympic champion carries his younger brother towards the podium. Oh my God, I cannot believe what we are seeing here. Matt, is this allowed? Is he allowed to help his brother? You know, is that part of the rules? I'm not too sure. We've never seen anything like this before. Unbelievable scenes. Unbelievable scenes in Cozumel. The Brownlee brothers arm in arm, but it's not by way of celebration. Henry Schumann's celebrating. He's going to win this race in Cozumel out of nowhere. But we have to be concerned about the health of Jonathan Brownlee. And they're not even on the final stretch yet. Schumann wins in Cozumel. The brothers are coming home arm in arm to finish in second and third. But Johnny can hardly stand. And Alistair is having to drag him across the line and pushing him home, pushing him home for second. Johnny finishes in second. Goodness me, what an incredible conclusion here in Cozumel. I've never seen anything like that anywhere in world sports. Worrying scenes all round. So Scubin wins, but who cares? Nothing is more visible in that clip than the love of an older brother. But how would that love be seen? How would you ever know that Alistair loves Jonathan so deeply? And he comes along beside him, and Jonathan had to be at the point of exhaustion and his weakness. You see his brother's strength. You see his brother's love. You see his brother push him across the line. He has the strength not just to carry himself, but to carry his kid brother. I'm thankful I have an older brother in Jesus. Trusted ministry runs not in its own strength, but in Jesus' strength. Trusted ministry runs not in its own power, but in Jesus' power. And as we come to this end of Corinthians, and Paul has loved this church so deeply, he is telling them you can trust this ministry because all along the way it's pointed to Christ. Do you point others to Christ or to you? Do you exercise authority and leadership under Christ's authority or insecurely for you? Do you use your spiritual gifts out of sacrificial service or frustration that others aren't where you're at? Do you speak truth and love to proclaim the gospel or do you keep silent so they will think of you? Do you operate like what people need is some sign or in the truth that there's no greater power than the gospel itself? When we do ministry with a focus on what people need to know is that they're sinners. God is the creator. He's the judge and he still loves them. Jesus died for them. They need to turn and they need to believe. They need to repent and have faith that when that happens, they're rescued and now they are set on mission for his kingdom. When that is at the very epicenter of ministry, we put God's power on display and not ours. Desperate people, whether they know it or not, need Jesus Christ. I'm calling you to learn to do trusted ministry that points to jesus and not to us that's where the power of god resides
That's where endurance happens. And that's where they see the true sign, the power of the gospel. Father, oh Father, thank you for carrying us across the line. Not in our strength, but in yours. Not in our power, but yours. Not our will be done, but yours be done. Father, may this church do trusted ministry corporately. But more to the point, may its, its, its parts, its various parts, its people in it, may we do trusted ministry, may we do it in endurance, pain over time in the right way, may we do it in a way that's gospel at the epicenter, so that the power is yours, so all the glory is yours, Father. You raised up a little boy when your disciples failed. Father, I'm asking you in this moment to take the broken ways we've tried to do ministry and make it right, Father. Father, would you just enter, would you press in to the people you've called us to serve, despite our weaknesses and our brokennesses, that they might taste and see that the Lord, he is good. Father, would you give us chances to do that this week? Would you open our eyes to see them? Would we initiate in them? Would we love people with the power of Jesus Christ and not our own? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.